0: Hello and welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett and I apologize for the bad audio quality. It's just in this intro. I'm in an Airbnb and I don't have my mic. Today I'm sharing the second half of my conversation with Shauna Gordon McKeon about governance. This time we talk more about the stories we like and how they handle governance. It's really fun. One note. We talk for a while on our opinions about the movie Black Panther. In the show notes, I've linked to better writing by Black critics about the very things we try to discuss. So if you're interested, please check that out. Let's get to it.
1: Oh, I don't know if we should go down this tangent. but We absolutely should. uh, (laughs) Well, so there's just this quote that I was reading um, in a book about, so, um, so, in eighteen I wanna say eighteen eighty, my great 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 grandfather uh was crushed to death between two railroad cars. He was a railroad worker. Oh no, uh, and he got between two railroad cars and he was crushed to death. And uh we we know this because there was like a little newspaper clipping that my sister found that said something along the lines of I mean it's like actually pretty graphic, it's like his head was crushed into a shapeless mass. Uh and he leaves behind like a wife and five children uh, in destitute circumstances and one of those five children was my great-great-grandfather um but so anyway that's like a family story that's been around for a little while at least ever since my sister found that newspaper clipping and then unrelatedly i was reading a book about uh i think maybe the history of unions i forget which book this was in but there was a um uh a quote from someone who was like, I think the union, like a president of a union Pacific railroad or Erie railroad, who sort of said, says something, it's something along, along the lines of like, you know, the railroad is the railroad industry is like fed by like the blood of the blood and the bones of like the people who work on it. It is a price we pay for progress, uh, which is like, such like, that guy wasn't out there getting crushed to death between railroad cars.
0: Yeah, fuck that guy. He's paying zero price, and also, like, maybe if conditions were better, <laughs> yeah, there wouldn't have to well, be a price.
1: Yeah. Well, the kicker for this story is that so this my my ancestor died in 1880. Uh, about five to ten years earlier, there was the invention of the automatic coupler, which made it unnecessary for people to get between railroad cars. Um, But the railroad companies uh, for like a couple decades, including during the time when my ancestor died, were like just dragging their feet about implementing them because it cost so much to do. And it wasn't until the U.S. Congress passed a law requiring that railroads install automatic couplers that like suddenly the deaths of railroad employees plummeted. Uh, So like, yeah, like not only was this asshole uh, not paying the price that my ancestor was paying, like he also could have prevented... Like, he just wasn't willing to pay the price of installing automatic couplers. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah. So, yeah, in any case, like, often people use this, like, narrative of progress in this, like, context where it's, like, used to justify all sorts of awful things, whether it's, like, worker exploitation or, like, you know, um, the enslavement of people, like, you know, removing people from their land. Like, people will just use the narrative of progress for, like, for, like, anything. So I'm always, like, really tentative whenever I speak about progress. Because at the same time, I do think that, like, there are more just ways and less just ways to live in the world. And I want to move us to progress towards the more just ways. But, yeah, like, you got to be real careful with the way you spin that narrative.
0: Is there anything else you want to tell me about your story?
1: Like, I haven't worked out the resolution yet. Um I, I really want to keep the the elements that are like based off of yearbooks and high school and like the football and the prom king and like all of these elements. Like I want to keep them, but it's like coming up with an in-universe justification for why the society is like this is like a little hard. Like I have spent a long time trying to like, I really want one of the characters to be taking photos because it's like, they're based on a yearbook culture. you got to have, like, photos for your yearbook, right? Mm-hmm. But then it's like, how do they have the capacity to, like, how do they have cameras? Like, where did the cameras come from? Is this, like, a post-apocalyptic society? How would a post-apocalyptic society, like, retain the ability to have cameras? Maybe they've just, like, I don't know. And I'm, like, trying, going back and forth between, like, can I find an in-universe justification? Or, like, should I just be, like, you know, the author is God. Like, this is just how it is and there's no explanation for it? Uh that's like something I'm struggling with. So yeah.
0: And there's no right answer. I mean, I, I, my view is like, the author is God, like, and just like, let yourself play. But I don't know, sometimes even if the author is God, and like, things are not explained. um, The author kind of knows the backstory. I just it does sound like a it does sound like there's a lot of capacity for stalling out trying to figure out the lo- logistics of it all.
1: yeah, that's bringing the question back around to like the stories that we tell about governance. I have a hard time turning my brain off now whenever I'm consuming new media from like noticing like how they are portraying like what are like the political implications of the story they're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, so an example, like I think for me, the most like paradigmatic example, I might've mispronounced that word, uh, is, um, Star Wars, uh, which is, it's funny to me that I hadn't thought about Star Trek from a governance perspective, but I've thought about Star Wars a lot. Um, I mean, it seems like people are either one or the other. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Although I haven't, I have in fact watched some Star Trek and I like Star Trek. Um, but when you look at the sort of stories that they tell in Star Wars, uh, In the sort of original trilogy, you've got, like, this evil empire and you've got to overthrow the evil empire. And it's, like, this super simplistic, like, governance story of, like, people in power bad must overthrow them. Yeah. Uh, And, like, I mean, there's there's some nuances in a couple of small places, but it's, like, basically, like, a very simplistic story. Uh, Then you get the prequels, which are a more interesting story because you're operating under the constraint that you need to end up in a place where the empire, where bad people are in power. So you sort of have to tell a story that ends with bad people in power. Uh, And so like somewhat logically, and I think really interestingly, like to me, this is the most interesting part of the prequels is like, it's a story about they have a democracy and it gets corrupted. And then it turns into a, like an authoritarian dictatorship and a fascist dictatorship, uh, which I think is really actually quite neat. Um, And then you have the newest trilogy, which is set forward in the future. And so if you think about it, like sort of a logical governance story to tell there would be, you know, you have a democracy and it's sliding into fascism again, just like it did in the prequel trilogy. But because we've moved forward in time and we have learned from the past, we find a way to stop it. Uh, and that is not at all what the new trilogy is about. They were like, we're just going to, we're going to be super depressing. We're going to destroy all of the high notes of the previous trilogies and make all of our main characters' lives be for nothing. Uh, just so we can tell the story again of fighting an evil empire. Yeah. Um, because that is like one of the few stories, political governance stories, that we're comfortable telling in this society. It's like very similar to, for instance, the hunger games. Uh, so like the hunger games is like very much, there's an evil empire and we're going to rebel against it. Uh, and like, you know, like spoiler warning. I mean, I guess I should have spoiler warning to the star Wars discussion too, but you know, you get to the end of hunger games and there's this sort of like moment of like, Oh, like, uh, this new society we've built is also bad. Uh, And on the one hand, I'm like, cool, that's like, it's not like oversimplifying the idea that like revolutions are always good. Um, But also it gives people nothing to grasp onto for the question of like, how do we, if you've got a democracy, how do you keep it? Like, there's like very, very little mainstream fiction that actually speaks to the moment we're in. It's just like telling the story over and over again of. You know, noble individuals overthrowing evil society.
0: Interesting too, because like collectivism isn't in any of these stories, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like there's there's sometimes like an implied collective There's occasionally an implied collectivism in uh, in the sort of revolutionary group, although not usually. Like in Hunger Games, they've got like a sort of like president who's basically in charge there's like never any discussion about checking her power other than through a sort of like um individualist individualist uh, like katniss in the story checks the person's but not like through any formal mechanism just because she's popular enough that she can check and she's important enough that she can check the president's power um and like uh i don't know another example i think about is harry potter just because like like looking at the things that are like like marvel star wars harry potter Like, the things that almost everyone has seen.
0: Collective, like, fairy tales, essentially.
1: Right. In in Um, that
0: people have... Enough people have seen them that you can can play around with them and use them as a point of reference.
1: Right. But you can't really use them as a point of reference for, like, helpful governance decision-making, because it's also simplistic and often, like, defeatist. So, like, I don't think there is any sort of, like, formal governance of, like, the Harry Potter resistance, but... Like, when you get to those sort of, like, after the fighting is over, how do they reform society? The answer is that they don't. They don't do a damn thing to reform it. They, like, like, they just, like, have characters you like now being in charge.
0: Yeah, but, like, and Harry Potter becomes a fucking society. cop. Like, that's what orders yeah. are, essentially.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and so you have this, like, this, like, generation-defining story that, like, Nearly everyone you talk to can tell you what happens in Harry Potter, uh, some in more detail than others. And like it's useless as if like if anything, it like is like depressing because it maybe maybe what you take away from Harry Potter is that, you know, uh, there are changes impossible. You can't reform bad systems. You can only replace bad people with good people.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's value in these kind of stories in that it's teach you to be suspicious of people in power, which I think is yeah. always, not always. Yeah, that's, so-
1: that's a solid. It's
0: like, it's like useful. It's like, you don't want to just yeah. blatantly accept. I think it's better to be a little suspicious, though.
1: Yeah, I- although, although counterpoint, counterpoint, uh, like, what are the QAnon and anti-vaxxers right now, but suspicious of people in power?
0: Yeah, I was about to say I was like about to say like I was catching myself because I was thinking like, (laughs) yeah, it's good to be suspicious, though, not necessarily fully paranoid. Right. Um, Right. Like there is there is a middle ground where you don't want to accept everything, but denying everything is also really catastrophic.
1: Right. Like you need you need a way to think about when you are. When you see flaws in a system, how do you fix those system in a way that's not just we have a big, like, battle with wands or space guns or whatever, and we destroy our enemies and then we take over?
0: I wonder if popular media like Hunger Games and the new Star Wars are contributing to our—I mean, it's both, right? I was going to say, I wonder if they're contributing to our, like— general hopelessness or if they are um just reflecting it (laughs) and it's both yeah maybe probably but i have talked about this before like as individuals about well we've talked about hopelessness and adjacent to that i was talking to my friend the other day and i was saying how the answer is you need both like you always need people who are going to be like, the system is fucked up, but you also need people who are going to like work within the system for change. Like, like the truth yeah. is like, if you look at history, you need both of those people to exist. Um, Like one without the other is very, one type of person without the other is very limited.
1: Yeah. And. Cause you never know which situation you're in, whether you're in a situation where like the system can be reformed inside or whether you do need like some sort of bigger external change.
0: Yeah. You don't, I guess you don't know, but like I almost would say that like maybe it doesn't fully matter. Like, I don't know. I mean, the time period I like the sort of movement, the one movement I know the most about is the suffrage movement. Right. Because I've been like researching it for a while. Um, And like, the truth is, like, when you look back at it, like you needed the people who were pressuring government officials like. In in like the respectability circles, and you also needed the people who hated the respectable suffragettes. Yeah. And who like w- protested in front of the White House and like were jailed. Like like if you had one without the other, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And, like, who cares which of them were right? Like, like ultimately, together, they all sort of pushed things to the left.
1: Yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. And
0: that's one movement. And, like, I don't fucking know about history. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> the people who impress me the most are people who are like, what can we change granularly about our current system? And how can we do it? Um. Because you are like the prime example. You're like you're like one of the one of the people in my life who is most like that, and I am so prone to being like, fuck it. You know what I mean? To just being yeah. just shutting down. Um, and there are times when you need yeah. to shut down, but also like, like you like your type of person is like the type of person who gets a lot done.
1: Yeah. Well, I think. For me, one thing that helps me be not actually more optimistic, but more proactive is that I like I think that sometimes some people not saying you specifically, but it's hard to imagine taking action that you don't know what it looks like. Like it's a lot easier to take an action or to do something if you have a model, which is where like history comes in and where like good fiction comes in where you can imagine yourself doing something because you've seen someone else do that, whether it's like a real person in the past, or whether it's uh, someone in fiction. And I just get so mad about the way that politics is talked, the way that history is talked about, like the limitations of mainstream fiction, that I just assume if I can't figure out what to do, that there is something I could do. And it's being hidden from me by like these cultures that are invested in disempowering us. I'm just like, Well, screw those people. I'm going to, like, search until I can find something to do. And, like, oftentimes I, like, sometimes I can't find anything. Like, I'm, there are times that I feel helpless. Um, But I'm usually able to come up with at least something, even if it's kind of small. Uh, And it's almost like a sort of stubborn, there's got to be something I can do that's more than just, like, tweeting angrily about this. Yeah, Like, there are people that benefit from me doing nothing from me like exercising my right to act by tweeting angrily focusing on like surface level surface level issues instead of like trying to think systemically Um, and I think that's a big part of why like I've been critiquing several times the way that governance is talked about and I think it's because like to to show people stories about effective governance is to teach people what effective governance looks like which is a profoundly empowering thing And you know the people who decide what are what is in our textbooks, who decide uh, what is what is on like CNN or Fox, the people who decide like what is in the latest blockbuster, like they're already in power, so they don't they don't really benefit from creating narratives and stories that empower others.
0: About art and pop culture, which I feel a lot more comfortable like talking about than uh, I just have more experience. thinking about and talking about that than like government stuff. Um, Part of the problem is like right like. It is harder to make interesting. A story about someone who like participates in marches and like calls their congressperson like every week, (laughs) right? And like who does the like the little shit that you have to do as a citizen that if enough people do it, it leads to big shit. Um, Just narratively, it's more of a challenge than the world is going to end and one person needs to stand up to the evil monster.
1: I both agree and disagree. I think that some of that, at least, is due to what we as a culture value. Mm. Um, And I think about... um, Come, come with me on this journey. I'm, I'm with I you. I think about. <laughs> I'm on the train. I think about. I think about coffee shop AU's in fanfiction. Wait, wait, wait. So, what's that? Uh, so okay, so an AU is alternate universe. So AU fanfic is when you're writing a story that's based on some, like I don't know, like Star Wars or whatever, to use an example we've been talking about, or Harry Potter, um and it's an alternate universe. So like the characters are something's different about the universe, like. I don't know, maybe, like, they're all dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's never, they're almost never dinosaurs. But, uh, so, one, like, common trope is the coffee shop AU, where everyone is, like, part of a coffee shop. Like, they're, like, baristas and customers. Um, And one thing I find really interesting about the coffee shop AU in particular is sort of, like, emblematic of this idea of, like, we're going to take, like, we're going to take, like, Darth Vader or uh, Lord Voldemort. Or Dumbledore, like any of these other characters. And we're going to take them out of their, like, super dramatic setting. And we're going to put them in a coffee shop. Wow. And, like, it is a... Like, coffee shop AUs are a celebration that there is drama and conflict to be found in, like, these really mundane elements of life. Uh, And I think it's no surprise that, like, the type of people who write fanfic, like... To be clear, I think it's actually fantastic. Um, like did you know that uh NK Jemison is a fanfic author? No idea which fanfic author she is, but like I saw that like she and I was like, I don't know. I'm i I'm a fan of fanfic because there's some like exquisitely good stuff out there. Oh absolutely. Uh,
0: yeah. I did not know and, NK Jemison uh, is, but I I believe it. I totally buy it.
1: Yeah, she's yeah, and she's like one of like the best living authors in my opinion. So uh she's out there writing like I just I just wish she would let me know which fandom she was writing in (laughs) because I would join the fandom just to read her fanfic. Um, God, I've distracted myself thinking about how badly I want to read N.K. Jemisin's fanfic. Uh, Uh, Right. The Coffee Shop AU. Right. So, so I think that like, I personally get a lot of joy out of reading like stories, whether they're original fiction or fan fiction that talk about like these smaller moments. And I think a whole bunch of like literary fiction, um, like, like I think like this whole genres, which I don't really read that much, but like that are about like smaller moments. Um, so like, why can't those be like smaller political moments? And we we were even talking about earlier. We were talking about um, uh, uh, Twelve Angry Men, which on the scale of governance is like really small. It's just like one particular court case, but like within the confines and the scope and the scale of that particular story, it's incredibly dramatic. It's like a life and death situation. So, um, so I think that it's all about how you frame it and that we are sort of like stuck in a mode that glorifies violence, that glorifies, um, masculinity, uh, that glorifies action, like physical action. And, but that's like not inherent to humanity. That's our culture. So I think like within the confines of our culture, yeah, it can be kind of hard to dramatize, dramatize, um, you know a, a a governance fiction that's like exploring consensus or ex- exploring a mass movement um but i think that if we're able to fix our culture enough where like we listen to like the people that are saying like no actually like these small scale stories are really interesting the interpersonal drama of of individual people is interesting um like i think but i mean like i yeah like our a cultural like is not great on a number of levels, and I think the sort of like the types of things that get made reflect the sort of pathologies of our culture,
0: yeah, um, and I'm saying yeah. I'm saying it's more of a challenge, but not that it's not a worthy challenge, and it's also yeah. like yeah. how boring at this point to have another like individual stands up to the big bad dictatorship story, like yeah. like. I don't know. I'd be I'd be interested in the challenge of like how to make like ordinary citizenship the way it's supposed to work be part of a good story.
1: Yeah. And like that's one of the things that I've been sort of like focusing on as a writer. Um I have a short story that uh I published in a friend's magazine a couple months ago or maybe about a month Yay! ago. Yay,
0: what magazine? Um, What's the story called?
1: It's the magazine is called After the Storm. It is uh, basically meant to be visions of a post capitalist future. Mm. And like, just like, you know, very in line with what we've been talking about, like, you can't you can't achieve what you can't imagine. So like, let's try and imagine like a better world and what that would look like. And you could say like, okay, well, a better world, that's boring, because there's no drama. But I was like, no, let me challenge myself. Like, where is the drama in a system that I would support? So That story, it's called Sunlight, and the premise is basically it's a society where um, businesses are governed by something called impact councils, and uh, basically once a business is seen to impact enough people, uh, as determined by the council, like a a level of governance is um, enforced. So like when you're really small and you're not impacting that many people, you can sort of like do what you want within the law. But if you get bigger, you have to have like a worker representative and a community representative that are on your governing board. Uh, And I was like, cool, I would like to live in a society that was like that. But like, where's the drama? Uh, And then I thought, well, I don't know if I had a business and I was like having some like external counsel mandate that I bring people on, even if I liked the people, I would still be pretty resentful about it. So, like, I wrote a story about um, a married couple who own a business together, and one of them is, like, enthusiastic about the getting, like, having an impact and, like, having this governance change, and the other one is, like, really resistant. And, like, the drama is there, and it's all about, like, the need to, like, trust other people if you want to. But, like, the, the, the flip side of impacting others is that you need to let them impact you which means you need to be able to, like, trust them. And if you're not ready to do that, then you're not ready to impact other people.
0: Ooh, I really want to read this story.
1: Yes, well, I I can send you a link to it. It's open to the the public. Cool,
0: yeah, we'll Um, put that link in our show notes so the listeners can read it too.
1: Yeah, but I think, I mean, I think just in general, there's just, like, such a richness to be mined, both in terms of the sheer diversity of alternate realities that we can imagine, even if based only on the types of societies that have already existed, um, but also like societies that have never existed, like there's so much space that we can imagine. And then there's also just like so much drama to be mined from like all of the like the real world and these alternate worlds. Like a dictatorship topple uh, in order to have drama, I think is just like so lazy at this point. Yeah,
0: I agree. Have you ever read Breakfast of Champions? I probably have asked you this before.
1: I, yeah, I feel, like, I feel like you have. I have not read it. <laughs>
0: I haven't read it in a long time, but for a long time, it was one of my favorite books. And um, there is a, mo- spoilers, I guess, there is a moment in the book where Vonnegut kind of becomes a character. Like, it gets very meta, and explores slash realizes the thesis of like the traditional plot structure where there are major and minor characters is like harmful to society because so many people walk through the world thinking of themselves as a major character and everyone around them as minor characters. And
1: I mean, there's even a, there's even a, um, like, literally, on the right, there's, like, this whole culture where they talk about, like, NPCs, like, non-player characters, like, from video games. Like, you want to be a played, a played character, like, you want to be in control of your own destiny, and, like, other people are just NPCs. Oh,
0: that is really dark. Yep. That's so dark! I hate that so much! <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised, but I hate it. Yeah. Um, Because NPCs, like, I think the most, like, original definition of NPC are, like, the characters who get, like pushed off the cliff while you're driving. Yeah. Like by. With the Star
1: Trek. Red shirt. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, yuck. Um. But yeah, Vonnegut. And then he sort of makes this vow with himself to never write a book like that again. And that always stuck with me, even though I am currently writing a book that does have major <laughs> and minor characters in it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, this is like, this is like a real deep question because You know, I think about this in, especially like when I'm working on novels and because with a, with a short story, it's kind of like everyone's an NPC or like everyone's a minor character because you just don't have enough, like, yes, technically your protagonists are the major characters, but you're still not able to go that deep into like many characters at all. Whereas with a novel, you can spend a lot of time and you can like make people really complex, but like, I don't know. I feel like it's like, what? unless you have, like, a locked room story, like, every this like, ten people on a spaceship, and we're going to go equally into ten people's perspectives. Like, even then, you're going to have characters who, like, unless they were, like, born from, like, a lab in that spaceship, they're going to know other people. And those people, like, you're just going to have to treat some people not as less important, but, like, you're just going to have to go into less detail about them. I might argue that, like, in any story of significant richness and complexity, there have to be minor characters defined as like characters where you just don't go into much detail about their background and why they're behaving the way they do
0: yeah that's a really good point and I don't even remember at this point if he uses the terms major and minor characters or like slightly different terminology I think I think what he vows to do at least in this one book is to like let you peep through many people's eyes. Um, yeah. I don't know if he vows to give equal, yeah. um, equal space and time to everyone. Um, and it's like, it's like a very radical decision um, that I don't even know if he sticks to. Cause I haven't read all of his books. <laughs> um, I have read one of his like most final books before he dies. And it's like barely a book. Like it's just his thoughts. So I think he does get a little more, like, esoteric as the books go along. Um,
1: I mean, I think it points at something that I do think is really valuable, which is, like, not to have cardboard villains in your stories. Yeah. Like, I think having cardboard villains in your stories, like, teaches people to treat other people as though they could be cardboard villains instead of recognizing the, like, full complexity of every single human being. Yeah. Think about all the sort of, like, the major properties we've talked about, like, Star Wars hunger games harry potter all of them rely on cardboard cutout villains with like no possible motivation like the emperor or president snow or like lord voldemort like i actually at one point point like got into like this idea that lord voldemort was actually kind of interesting because he's like set like he comes of age during world war ii and he's like super anti-muggle and i was like if i lived in europe during world war ii I might become really anti-Muggle because, like, that's, like, the Holocaust and, like, you know, all of these, like, horrible battles and, like, that's the invention of nuclear weapons. Like, it seems reasonable to be really anti-Muggle at that point. But, of course, like, Voldemort never, like, uses that as justification. It's all just, like, like, cardboard villainy. Yeah, Um, I
0: feel like Rowling did a lot of great setup and there were payoffs that she did not see in the later books that could have been way better than what she ultimately came up with.
1: Yeah. I mean, I also think that her books were just like not meant to be criticism. Like they're not meant to suggest any significant criticism of society. Yeah. Like, so, and I don't think you can write a story where your main character is like, like accurately critiquing the uh, systems of society that led to world war two without like, I just that just doesn't seem like I'm not sure how you write a story that critiques, like, pre World War II European governance, and then also has zero suggestions for how to change society. She's like, there's some things she's really creative about, but she's not like it's not. She's not creative in her politics.
0: No, she's not. Yeah, that's definitely true. I was trying to think: is there any major story in in the league of? Star Wars, um, everything we just named, Hunger Games, et cetera, Where the narrative is, is more complex than people fighting the big bad as individuals, you know?
1: I mean, I think my favorite sort of blockbuster film in terms of governance, which does, like, from the beginning, I'll say I have caveats here, but I do think Black Panther does some interesting things. Yeah. Um like I, it's I think it's by far the most politically interesting Marvel movie and the most interesting from a governance perspective. Um it is about a flawed power structure that there's a revolution but the revolution is by the bad guy, but they don't just like quash the revolution. They like reform in response. Like they recognize the validity of his critiques of the society and reform the society to address them um there's also like a really like fascinating subplot that i really love um with general okoye and her um conversations with oh nakia nakia um right so like there's like at one point i guess spoilers for black panther (laughs) at one point uh the black panther it's like there's like a trial by combat um which like this that gets to like my critiques of black panther because it's like okay, so governance in the society is like a hereditary kingship and the only way you can challenge it is through trial by combat. Like that is like, that is an extremely boring political structure to have chosen that they did not have to choose. They could have chosen something else. Mm -hmm. Um, But so in any case, there's like a trial by combat and um, Killmonger, um, uh, T'Challa, that's it. Killmonger defeats T'Challa and everyone assumes T'Challa is dead. And there's like this argument between Okoye, who is the general of, uh, uh, of the society of Wakanda and Nakia who is um, T'Challa's love interest and also like kind of like a spy um, where Nakia is like trying to like secretly get the royal family away and like foment rebellion against Killmonger who like to be clear is like pretty awful from the start and is like killing people so like you're, you're inclined to sympathize with Nakia and Okoye says like I'm not going to join with you I am the general it is my job to serve uh the king and killmonger became king through like legal legitimate means so i must support him even though i like hate him and i'm really mad at him for killing t'chella uh and like i think that's just like such a great uh moment of dramatic tension between those two characters it's like my favorite scene in like all of marvel is the, the argument that they have um and uh Like, you can see Okoye, like, throughout the rest of the story, she's, like, warring with herself between, like, her obligation to fulfill the constitution of their society and her feeling that this man is abusing power. Um, And then she's sort of, like, there's sort of a letdown that she's, like, released from that dramatic tension by um, T'Challa coming back from the dead. And, like, once he comes back from the dead, like, the constitution says that they should continue their trial by combat until one of them is actually dead uh, or, or, uh, res- not resigns, surrenders. Um, and when Killmonger refused to do that, then Okoyo gets to say, okay, well now I'm doing my constitutional, constitutional duty by fighting you. Um, so it is a bit of a cop-out. Um, and like, again, I think the whole decision to have it be a hereditary kingship with trial by combat is like a cop-out. Uh, but that being said, like, I think it is a relatively, like, it's one of the better examples of a blockbuster in terms of the sort of messages it's it's saying that like someone can be wrong and you can be like violently opposed to them, but they could also have their critique of you could be correct and you, you can adjust to them. Uh, and also maybe like, I don't know there's going to be another black Panther movie. Maybe they'll learn from that experience that they shouldn't have a hereditary <laughs> context, trial by combat. Who knows?
0: I agree with you. I think that, I thought that Black Panther was a really interesting movie and, like, posed a lot of interesting premises that they kind of, like, fell short on in the end. Yeah. Like, ultimately, like, it it was very disappointing to me that, like, the last third of the movie was a battle like every other fucking battle in every other fucking movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and yes, it was cool that, like you liked the villain as much as you liked the hero and you felt this moral ambivalence. But the battle was like, it was too rote, I thought. Like, it was just like everything else. And like, they didn't have to make what were so bad. I mean, they I think they felt they had to in order to have that battle and have the audience get behind that battle. But like, what if Killmonger was as interesting a leader and as nuanced a leader as he was in his views before he became a leader
1: yeah totally yeah and i mean i think also part of it is that killmonger's sort of thesis is that you should violently uh you should violently arm oppressed peoples especially black peoples around the world so they can overthrow their oppressors and like if you don't make killmonger an irredeemable villain who must die by the end of the story then you kind of have to deal with that argument on its own terms uh and instead they're like we killed him off so no one's making the argument anymore so we don't have to address it and we can just have t'challa like quietly reform but not actually do the thing that killmonger was actually asking for yeah um, marvel never could like, have
0: done it but like how interesting would that have been if like he got a little bit more through that plot line and like yeah. armed some, or like, some e-
1: people I, I just can't imagine Marvel actually being like, we're gonna try to have a serious answer to the question of no. like whether it is okay to like arm people who are being violently oppressed. Nope, yeah,
0: but it would be interesting.
1: And I feel like, you know, it'll be a marker that our society has gotten better when we're able to have mainstream media that contemplates these things. Like there is there are people who write about this stuff. Like there are authors and artists who are tackling these issues but not on the scale of like collective what you what you called it like collective fairy tales there's not people who are making media that it has the force of capital behind it so that everyone sees it yeah. that tackle these questions yeah are you familiar uh with the book workshops of empire no uh, so i've not read this book at all but i did read a review of the book uh and it's about The um, efforts by uh, conservative foundations and government agencies, including, I believe, the CIA, uh, to um, develop the writing workshop culture and shape, like, American literary trends in the 50s and 60s. Yeah.
0: Oh, oh, wait, I might have heard of this book. So it's about conservative. Sorry, say that again. It's about conservatives.
1: Right, so in the I believe it was the 50s and 60s, there is like creative writing workshops. I don't know if there were creative writing workshops before this, but like they started like becoming a bigger thing, and a lot of them were funded by uh, the government, so like the CIA, GI Bill, or by private foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and like the explicit goal for a lot of these like the reason they were funding it was because they wanted to shape the narrative that writers were telling about God, like about everything about like how to exist in society and what was important and what isn't. And so um, uh, like one of the things that they pushed people to focus on in those writing workshops was that uh, to be like less political, like less dogmatic focused on like intensely focused on individuals uh and like personal experiences and sensations and desires and like meant to like discourage like social critique so like an explicit sort of like defanging of the power of literature um funded by like the cia and like old rich dudes
0: that is so interesting
1: yeah and like who knows like what the like long-term impacts of that but when we talk about the sort of depressingness of the kind of media that's out there like you know, maybe there's, like, echoes and, like, carry-on consequences of this effort to, like, limit the scope of what we imagine.
0: There are um, close to two people who have read this book that came out a few years ago that I can't remember the name of, but I'll put it in the show notes, about the writing workshop structure and a sort of, like, decolonial critique of the traditional, like, writing workshop structure and, like, alternatives to it. Um, so I was hearing a lot about that book for a while and um, just talking about like writing in different cultures and how stories operate in different cultures and how um, how like the very structure of the workshop where like the writer is not able to speak until like 40 minutes in um, mm. can be problematic in some ways. and. I don't know. I I think in the writing world, more recently, it's like generated a lot of discussion and people are trying out some of these like alternate workshop structures.
1: But what you're describing with people not even being able to talk for 40 minutes, like it sounds like very disempowering. Um, And I can see how like a structure that disempowers the author, like makes it easier for like a funded workshop leader to sort of like like, impose a set of values onto the work and, like, ensure a sort of conformity to this, like, apolitical and, like, asystemic uh, type of literary culture that the, like, the CIA and the Rockefeller Foundation were trying to produce. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think, uh, like, not to get too far into it because, like, I've more heard people talk about the book than, like, read it myself, Um, so
1: yeah and to be clear i just I just read an, a review of this book. I did not read it myself yeah, either i think
0: so. I think writing workshops have like moved very far from that starting point and like there are some really great workshops out there that are like very you know diverse and interested in like all sorts of stories at this point yeah um, obviously, like the benefit of not having the author not talk about not speak during workshop is like you don't you don't get you don't get to be defensive and like the the sort of you don't get to defend your story right um you have to listen and like before it is like when your story is out in the world like you don't get to be there being like but this character was actually had a bad father so that's why he's this way and like you don't know yeah um, because all the other people have are what's on the page but that only works if um, the audience of the people you're writing for is the people in your workshop, right? Um, right. So there can be a lot of like problematic stuff happening if like say you're the only person of color in a room and people are like, I don't get this or I don't get that and you don't get to say anything. Um, or if you're yeah. the only queer person in a room, for example. Um, i heard of people doing a lot of sort of amendments to that traditional structure like um she has people get to sort of say upfront like what they want to focus on or what they want the conversation to focus on and she also don't want the the class to go on like a 20 minute tangent about like the boots one of the characters is wearing you know um Or, like, a 20-minute discussion on, like, whether the character loves this guy or doesn't love this guy, like, um, if the answer is, like, going to help move things along, um, the the person gets to, like, step in and say it. And I've known people who have gone into workshops with, like, questions, you know, um, that they ask the group and the group has to answer those questions um so there's like a lot of different ways to sort of do a hybrid thing too are you ready for something i learned this week
1: yeah no give it to me
0: so my friend leah she sent me an email god bless leah line today i learned rhubarb growth noise My husband told me about rhubarb growing so fast that it made noise. And I was like, I call bullshit. Alas, twas correct. Um, Have you ever eaten rhubarb?
1: Oh, like a little bit. I will say it's not one of my favorite plants. No. Is it a vegetable or a fruit? It's a fruit, right? It's a
0: fruit and like, it's not the kind of fruit you eat raw. Like, it's yeah. like usually the rhubarb leaves or stems or no, the stems are like cooked into like jam or like some kind of dessert item.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is why I don't have it very often is because I'm lazy and I don't like to cook my food.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, she sent this link. It's uh, to Atlas Obscura. And um, the article is called Listen to the Sick Beats of Rhubarb Growing in the Dark. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so if you grow rhubarb in the dark, um, it makes squeaks, creaks, and pops as it gets bigger.
1: Wait, how do you grow it in the dark? Doesn't it need sunlight? Isn't that like the primal characteristic of plants is that they need sunlight to grow?
0: It's a method of growing forced rhubarb I'm reading this in real time. Uh, Farmers let the rhubarb grow out in the open for two years as the roots collect and store calories. Then the plants are transplanted to lightless growing sheds around November, where they continue to grow warm, but out of the season and in the dark. The rhubarb grows without photosynthesis, which normally makes the plant tough and fibrous. Rhubarb is quite stringy, but when you cook with forced rhubarb... um, you get tender, less tart rhubarb. Hmm. And apparently they pop.
1: Like it, like it outgrows its shell and it pops the shell. It's
0: like what is that sound?
1: Can we like yeah, Google, let's it?
0: Google it? Does rhubarb the Google search? Why does rhubarb go to seed? Why does rhubarb grow in the dark? Why does rhubarb make you poop? <laughs> why does rhubarb pop
1: Uh, this link says this random google link says uh as the stalks burst up out of their initial buds they create a distinct popping sound and as they get larger the stalks rub together and create squeaks and creaks
0: yeah but only when forced
1: Maybe because it, maybe it happens really fast when it's maybe. forced. But why? Someone explain the science to me.
0: Like to write in. <laughs> <laughs> Especially someone who understands plants. I, I really oh, do want to oh.
1: know. I Googled another. Again, this is just the first result on Google, but it says rhubarbs forced rhubarb stalks grow faster than usual because the plant is searching for light to make chlorophyll so it's still trying to photosynthesize which is actually kind of sad i was gonna
0: say it. that's so sad it's like desperately like trying to get bigger as fast as possible to like just desperately trying to get light
1: well i think the rhubarb should rise up and overthrow us yeah i mean I make would a story it. about rhubarb overthrowing <laughs> the evil empire of humans that's That is the only iteration on the evil empire being overthrown that I will accept from this day forward. Like if the protagonists are rhubarb, yeah. Like
0: I think they'd be cute as characters. They have those big leaves and those little stems. Yeah. Anyway, if you'd like to share something you learned this week, either while researching a project or just living your life, email me at research. Whole podcast at gmail.com i may read it in a future episode you just listened to research hole i'm val howlett our music is by joey howlett our logo is by leah felicity lucci you can subscribe to val howlett on patreon for more goodies like interview clips bonus materials and more goodbye